Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Briggins International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefeller. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Welcome, everyone, to another Global Law and Business podcast. Today, we will be doing something a little bit different. Given recent events in Hong Kong, we wanted to discuss what is happening in the city. As most of you will know, China's National People's Congress approved a decision recently that would enact a national security law for Hong Kong. This comes after a turbulent year in Hong Kong, during which protesters and police have clashed regularly. Adding a twist to the story, earlier this week, the U.S. Secretary of State certified that Hong Kong does not enjoy a high degree of autonomy, paving the way for measures that could take away some of Hong Kong's special treatment under U.S. law. Jonathan and I have both lived in Hong Kong, and as a result, the topic has special resonance to us. For that reason, more than a formal interview, we wanted to have a conversation about Hong Kong. To help us explore just what is happening in Hong Kong and what the future holds for the city, we have invited Eric Mitbrod, a Canadian attorney and former resident of Hong Kong. Eric was my classmate at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and is a great friend of mine. Before we get started, we'd like to acknowledge that no Hong Kongers, or Chinese for that matter, are participating in this conversation. That is partly for security reasons, as not many people live in Hong Kong are eager to express their views openly about the subject. And it is also in part so that we can present an international lawyer's perspective on what's happening there. With that, I'll turn it over to Eric. Uh, please, if you, if you could, um, give us a, a brief introduction about who you are and what you do and tell us about your particular connection to Hong Kong. So... I guess my starting point is that I don't have a family connection to Hong Kong. Um, I'm kind of a, a person who adopted Hong Kong. Um, I suppose the first time I went there was just basically as a tourist for a day. And then somehow a few years later, I decided to go to law school in Hong Kong. Um, part of that decision was based on my options here in Canada. Uh, some of the options would be to, in Canada are to go to a beautiful city like um, Saskatoon or Windsor. Uh, so, so Hong Kong had a bit more appeal um, from that aspect. So that's that's kind of my beginning of the connection to Hong Kong. Um, I first went there 
uh, I guess around 2010, and then began law school in uh, 2011. And so I was there for about three years. Um, so I actually did the uh, Juris Doctor program in Hong Kong. So that is the program that is for um, people who want to become lawyers in Hong Kong. I actually didn't go through with PCLL, which is the um, legal practice training program, which typically lasts about two years for solicitors or a year for barristers. So I, I did the degree, but not the um, practical portion uh, required to become a Hong Kong lawyer. Uh, instead, I came back here to British Columbia, where I uh, did my articles here in my hometown in Victoria. And then um, after that, I worked here in Victoria and then in Vancouver for about three years or so. Well, Eric, before we before we go any further, um, I think it might be useful. Um, two two quick things, um, and and perhaps Jonathan has has more questions. But I, I, if you could just follow up um, briefly, as as you, um, you you brought up the difference between barristers and solicitors, I think um, for some of our of our listeners, it, it would be good if you could explain that distinction and also perhaps clarify what um, what articling is all about, as as that's not a, a term that we really use here in the states. Generally, in the uh, the Commonwealth countries, they, they have something called articles or uh, practical training as a component uh, to become a lawyer. Um, so here in British Columbia, for example, um, typically after you finish law school, uh, you have to actually be hired by a law firm and work for them uh, for about, I believe it's 11 months plus a six-week course. And once you've successfully completed that, including the, the bar exams, then you get to become a member of the bar. Over in Britain and Hong Kong and quite a few other Commonwealth countries, they have a fairly strict divide between what we call barristers and solicitors. I guess the easy way to explain it is the barristers are the litigators or the people who go into court and um, in some jurisdictions, they still wear the, the wig and very traditional attire. And the solicitors are the lawyers that have direct contact with the clients, and they typically instruct for the barristers. And there was quite a strict division, and there still is in, in England and Hong Kong. So there's certain things that solicitors are allowed to do, while barristers have exclusive rights. For example... In Hong Kong, the barristers are the only lawyers who can appear in the, um, the higher courts, where solicitors cannot. Whereas in the United States, any lawyer can appear in court and, and more or less is, is allowed to you know, work in any area, whether it be in the office or in the courtroom. Now in Canada, we kind of have this hybrid. We're still more British than the Americans, but our lawyers have a more merged profession. Thank you for that. Turning back to, to Hong Kong, I'd like to I'd like to ask Jonathan to tell us about his own connections with Hong Kong. Now, I spent two years in Hong Kong in the early 2000s, and I was there as a volunteer for my church. So I was pretty much fresh out of high school. I had one semester of college done. I had had 12 weeks of very intensive Cantonese language training before I went to Hong Kong. 
And, uh, and I was from small town, Wisconsin, Fred, a little town called Platteville, which is 10,000 people. I had been to Chicago once or twice. I'd never been to New York. Uh, and I really didn't know what a, what a big metropolis was like. And so for me, my, my real first impression flying into Hong Kong was seeing the, you know, coming into the tower or coming in and seeing all of the towers. It was like a, it was like something out of a Lego land, right? Where you're flying in and see these mountains and then these just towers everywhere, huge towers. And, and I thought, wow, this is a, this is a real place where business is, is conducted, right? It, that must be why there's so many tall buildings. And I didn't know until I arrived, of course, that those were all housing complexes. And so seeing them 40, 50 plus stories high, um, that was a real eye opener for me. So I spent, I spent two years there, uh, you know, every day, basically out on the streets, talking to people, working on, you know, mostly in Cantonese as well. And so my, uh, my viewpoint, I think is on Hong Kong is influenced quite a bit by my interaction with what I would call everyday people on the streets of Hong Kong, uh, and less so with uh, the, you know, the business and legal community there. What about you, Fred? Can you fill us in a little bit on your your Hong Kong uh, introduction? I have lived in Hong Kong for a total of eight years, more or less, spread out over three different time periods. the The first time was from 2005 to 2007. I was just uh, coming off a a tour uh, as a consular officer in Guangzhou. I had left the the U.S. government. And, and was eager to experience life in Hong Kong after having gone there many, many times while I was um, posted in, in Guangzhou. Uh, the second time was when I went to Hong Kong to study uh, a master's at the, at the Chinese university, which is where, where I met Eric. And the, the third time, which is the, the, the most recent, um, uh, my most recent stint there, uh, I worked in, in the city for, for about five years and was there until until um, about a year and a half ago. Um, so all in all, about about eight years uh, living and working in the city. Um, Cantonese is uh, very limited, so I did not have that experience uh, that that Jonathan had of being able to to freely communicate with uh, Hong Kongers in their native language. However, my my uh, my Mandarin was. Uh, good enough that it allowed me at least um, some communication with with folks who perhaps um, would have been out of reach if um, if English was the only uh, means of communication available. Um, turning a little bit to to what's to what's happening now, um, we in the introduction, we talked about this national security law that is that is heading Hong Kong's way. Um, there's plenty, um, there, there are plenty of articles out there for people who really want to get into the weeds of what the, the law will mean in terms of, of, of its language and possible impacts. Um, but I'd love to hear Eric's impressions on what he feels will, will happen or what, what could happen, uh, in the aftermath of, of this law's enactment. Yeah. Um, I always, think of Hong Kong as, uh, I don't know who whose quote it is, but it's a city living on borrowed time. You know, from the very beginning, you know, 1997, we knew that, that there was 50 years left. I think the surprises were, um, 
how fast things have changed and moved uh, to what the worst case situation in uh, 47 may have been. Uh, when I was there, most of the lawyers and professionals I spoke to thought that perhaps Hong Kong by 2047 would get another extension or something like that, that uh, perhaps there'll be another 50 years um, after uh, 2047. Because, um, you know, why kill the, the goose that lays the golden eggs, as they, they often said. So, yeah, it's a big surprise. I, uh, of course, everybody will know that they, they tried to pass the security legislation uh, back in 2003 and shut down by, by riots. But what stands out as interesting is the leadership in Beijing, they feel so threatened, I suppose, or that Hong Kong is such a risk that they feel the need to basically amend the constitution of Hong Kong in order to fit this in. And it's such a drastic measure that is sure to get them, you know, in, in political trouble. I mean, uh, I guess what stands out to me about it is that they are that concerned that they're resorting to extreme measures, which five years ago, they never would have considered doing. When I was in Hong Kong, my nickname for the city was the Libertarian Disneyland. It felt like one of the freest places in the world. And it was this place that kind of a, I guess you could call it some kind of a libertarian experiment where, where you'll, you'll find these tropical islands off of the coast of China, remove taxes, remove most regulations, and invite almost anyone who wanted to move, live there and do business and, and have a hands-off approach. And that basically worked for a long time. Um, so the, the implementation of the security law kind of ends that whole thing because I think a lot of, you know, expatriates, foreigners will, will um, be a lot more nervous to go work and live in Hong Kong, knowing that the, the government in mainland China will have the ability to actually arrest them or move them to mainland China or sanctions. If they, they step out of line, you could end up in a jail once this law has been put into place. And I think the harm, well, it's, it's self-apparent, the harm, right? I, Eric, I think you are making great sense. Um, you know, as I'm, I'm thinking about uh, projecting myself into Hong Kongers' seats, you know, being uh, under British rule, being you know, having, having those freedoms, as, as we would call it, I'm trying to picture if I were uh, planted now as a Hong Kong native and uh, feeling like I had a 50-year lease on life, knowing that things might get a little different, but then I had the 50-year guarantee, um, I would be extremely upset. Um, but my, my sense of self-preservation might kick in as I'm trying to weigh in the balance. How much of my own autonomy am I willing to give up in exchange for uh, this this rule that I can't escape. It's uh, it, I guess with everything political, there's no easy answer, right? There's no easy way to uh, to think about it. And uh, certainly, from a um, you know, part of me from as a father of five kids, if I'm uh, you know, I want my kids to have the opportunity to make their own choices. Uh, but if I'm China as the father of Hong Kong, um, and and my primary role, uh, my primary concern is stability. Um, that is, uh, you know, it seems to me that, that 
the mainland government under Xi has really decided that um, that pacification is uh, is not the right way to do it. That that the strong arm control, you know, if we're going after Tibet, we're going after Xinjiang, going after Hong Kong to show that uh, you have to toe the party line or else. And so I think that uh, that acceleration by 25, 27 years is uh, is really quite a shock to everyone as as we're sitting back and. I'm sure, you know, a lot of Hong Kong citizens, the ones that didn't get out before 97, because, of course, they knew this was coming. Right. The ones that could get out before 97 went to, you know, went to Australia, went to New Zealand, went to the UK, went to Canada, went to the US. Um, and so uh, we're largely left with the group that didn't have the economic or or business or political wherewithal to to exit when they saw this coming, because there was a lot of nervousness in, in 96 you know, leading up to the 97 turnover. And a lot of, you know, a lot of companies didn't know what to do. For instance, I know the, um, uh, I think it's the HSBC Bank. Um, is that the right one, guys? The, uh, the one with, uh, with the fancy twisting building with the, with the lights. I know they're all lit up downtown. Um, uh, one of the bank buildings downtown was built, was built in uh, purposely like a, like a tinker toy set so that it could be taken apart and relocated if it needed, if it needed to be. And we're talking about a 120 story building, right? And so everybody knew leading up to 97 that, that there was a huge question mark as to how the CCP was going to deal with Hong Kong. Um, and I think those of us who would be considered China hawks or China followers uh, weren't necessarily surprised. Uh, of course, we're disappointed at how things have turned so quickly Um as the 2047 deadline has apparently been moved up to 2019, 2020. What do you guys think? Yeah, that, that's what it feels like to me. Um, I like to turn it around and try to think as if I was the, the Communist Party of China. Of course, their goal is to stay in power. And if we look at history going back over thousands of years, you know, China has periodically fallen apart and split into warring, warring factions. So there must be something about Hong Kong that we're a, probably a bit blind to being from the West um, because basically, you know, free speech, uh, freedom of expression, rule of law are things that we just believe to be God-given rights, so to speak. Um, there, there's something about Hong Kong that has really scared the leadership and pushed them to take extreme measures because obviously they've thought about this a lot. And for whatever reason, they've come to the conclusion that they have to, the nuclear option is probably not the right term, but take extreme measures. And of course, this is going to cause a lot of damage reputationally in terms of business and so on, I, I might be getting my my stats a little bit wrong, but I, I think I remember around the time of the, the handover, Hong Kong made up something like 10% of all of China's GDP. And now it's something like 1% or 2%. Um, so, so the goose's golden eggs are, uh, there's many more golden eggs within China. <laughs> the eggs comparatively being laid by Hong Kong are much less valuable since there's so many more of these golden eggs uh, from their other uh, big, large financial centers. 
Well, one thing that I'd like to um, follow up on and, and that you both uh, both Eric and Jonathan have have brought up is is keeping in mind the the China aspect of the equation. I, I, I think that for for some people, it, it's easy to miss that part of it. Right. I mean, if you've if you've spent meaningful time in Hong Kong, it's it's natural to to focus on 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 things from from that perspective and and to perhaps wonder how is what is happening in Hong Kong in any way impacting China you know why would they take such dramatic steps and i think uh you know the two of you have have alluded to this right i mean if if i also lived in in Shenzhen for for a couple of years uh, across the border and you, from some places in in Shenzhen, from some apartments in Shenzhen, you can you can literally see Hong Kong. You can you can you can look into you know not 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 the the, the city center, but certainly into some of the rural areas. So it's important not to underestimate just how much exposure um, people in the mainland, and especially in South China, and especially in in a city like Shenzhen, which is a very important uh, city. Uh, and the same thing with Guangzhou, which is a city that's not that far away, where people share a common language with Hong Kong. Um, the point is, there is a lot of exposure to what happens in Hong Kong. And I've always thought about that, about what example is is being set by the people in Hong Kong and how the the authorities up in Beijing will want to um, limit the, the, uh, the negative impact that developments in Hong Kong can have on their own population on, 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 on the mainland um, side of the border. Um, turning, perhaps turning towards the, the personal dimensions of this, um, one thing, I mean, we, we could, of course, talk about what is it that we, that we like about Hong Kong, and I'm sure that there, there's plenty that we could talk about, but perhaps to, to, to frame this a little bit more narrowly, um, let me let me ask uh, both of you this question: If you could never go back to Hong Kong, what would be the the one or, or perhaps two things that that you would miss the most? Yeah, that's a that's that's a pretty tough question because there are there are so many things that I really liked about Hong Kong, and I could say it from a personal perspective, it's one of the few places I've lived where the longer I was there, the more I liked it. It's, it's kind of like peeling an onion. There's, there's layer upon layer upon layer. And even after two or three years there, I was still discovering new places, new, new things to do, areas. Um, so, so that was an interesting part about it. Um, it's probably the most international city I've ever lived, uh, being that, you know, you, you could be sitting at a bar and meet meet uh, Russians at one table, um, you know, people from from England at another, um, people from Indonesia or Philippines or India. So it it has this eclectic mi- mix of all these people doing interesting things from around the planet, and somehow everybody, at least in my experience, seemed to get along and interact with one another. Um, I think Fred can attest that, you know, when, when we would go out on, on the town, we'd often end up in these conversations with, with fascinating people from, from just random places in the world. And so I think I would say that 
probably the thing I would miss is just that 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 international mixing of cultures and the the type of people that Hong Kong attracts because everybody who's there is doing something interesting. There's usually some interesting business or project or reason that they're there. I mean, you even see um, uh, sub-Saharan Africans uh, flying in who get weaker two-week-long visas, and they come in and they buy up a bunch of supplies and then bring them back to to wh whatever country they may be from and, and, and sell those wares there. Um, I, I, yeah, so, so that makes it very interesting. I could also add, I mean, just the actual uh, nature, like the physical layout of the city is, is really great. I think something like half of the territory has been preserved as parks. So they're, they are basically these wild parks. And um, in those parks, there are hundreds of kilometers of hiking trails that are extremely scenic. They, they could be a tourist attraction on their own, and you can spend days and weeks hiking them, and you always end up somewhere very interesting. So you could start your hike in, you know, 50, 100-story skyscrapers. Five minutes later, you're in a, a jungle-type environment. You can walk up some mountains in the forest, wild animals, snakes, all that stuff, and then you end up in a fishing village on the beach a couple hours later. What about you, Jonathan? What would you miss the most? I think Eric saying the the metropolitan mix of, of so many international people together was is so unique to Hong Kong. And uh, that would certainly be something. I mean, I'm, I'm a people person. So certainly my friends that I have in Hong Kong, and, and these are friends from uh, Indonesia, from Thailand, from Hong Kong, of course, from mainland China, just where you could find people from everywhere. I, I met a, a good friend who is an Indian woman of Indian descent who was from South Africa and moved to Hong Kong and married a, a Hong Kong guy. And so seeing the, seeing the mix, and it seemed like it was such a, a free mix between all, all of the races there. It was such an interesting and refreshing thing to see um, all of the, you know, seemingly everyone mixing without any, any kind of animosity. You know, there was always fighting, uh, seemed like uh, between one group or another, uh, and sometimes it was racially based. But for the most part, you see, uh, you see people getting along um, in in such a small space, which is really fun. I think I, one of, some of my favorite memories are of, of the Hong Kong flower blooming uh, in I think February, which was interesting to me coming from the Midwest, where February is a very dead month, and so it was fun to be that far south and to see that much life in Hong Kong, and and that made me understand why the flower was chosen, uh, you know, why, why it's featured on all the currency. And so for me, that's a, that's a very great memory. I still have some of my currency from Hong Kong and that, uh, you know, the bright pink and white, uh, those images call up, uh, quite a bit of good memories for me. And so I associate, uh, I will always associate those with Hong Kong and that would be very sad to not see that. I, I, I assume it would be akin to those who love seeing the Japanese cherry blossoms bloom as well. You guys have obviously mentioned many, many of the things that that, that I also miss. Um, I, I would like to to mention once again the natural resources that that Hong Kong has. I, when I find myself missing the place, often what I think about is the hiking trails. Um, as as Eric put it, right, you'd you'd, you'd start off somewhere and then end up in a place that is totally different, a fascinating place. 
and, and there were so many of them. You could uh, repeat, um, but there there was really no need for it. If you wanted to, you could you could explore a new trail every every weekend. Um, re- related to that, I, one of our mutual friends talked to me often about what he would call uh, urban hiking, and then Hong Kong was a great place for that. You could set off from your apartment and choose a direction and potentially walk for hours on end. Uh, seeing new neighborhoods, discovering things that you hadn't noticed. And something that I think cannot be stressed enough, uh, you do this in a framework of, of safety. Hong Kong has very, very low crime, uh, low crime rates in, in, a, in a very efficient framework. No matter where you ended up, it would be easy to find a way to get back, uh, whether by taking the, uh, the metro, the MTR, or, or a bus. I, I also miss the, the daily life you know, the, the regular, the, the little things that I would do on a daily basis, you know, go downstairs to the Japan Home Center to buy, you know, some Tupperware or go to to the 7-Eleven around the corner. There was something about how easy it was to, to fit in. I, I don't mean integrate, perhaps, but the, I was able, during the eight years that I lived in Hong Kong, I never really felt as if as if I didn't belong, I never really felt the the oppression of of living in a foreign land um, in the way that I felt pretty regularly in in mainland China. One more thing that I'd like to add in this regard, which is somewhat connected to Hong Kong, and and some of the same issues are are present. Uh, I also miss uh, Macau. It's it's not just Hong Kong. I also miss the other SAR. Obviously, things there are, are, are a little different in, in some ways, but to me, regular visits to to Macau were, were a regular part of, of my life in Hong Kong. It, it, it was one of my favorite experiences there to be able to hop on the ferry and in, a, in an hour be somewhere that was interesting as well, but at the same time, pretty different from Hong Kong in, in, in significant ways. So that that is definitely one of the the things that I, that that I will that I will miss I'd like to just very briefly ask the uh, the opposite question I guess before we wrap up which is um you know Eric Jonathan what were some of the things that you didn't like about Hong Kong some of the things that you will not miss well um I guess the saddest part about Hong Kong is you always knew that it was on borrowed time and that it wasn't going to last I mean, we, we were always hoping that, you know, in 2047, uh, the mainland government would have been enlightened and, and maybe borrowed a lot of the, the ideas of Hong Kong and, and maybe China would have become more like Hong Kong. That's what we were all secret, secretly hoping that they would, um, you know, uh, the rest of China would be more like Hong Kong rather than the opposite. And so I think that feeling of like impending doom, that things are getting worse even even when I was there, like there was this feeling of kind of being the the last holdout or being surrounded, <laughs> um, is is something that that was quite dark. And then the the other thing, just practically speaking, of course, is the cost of of living there. And, and you know, I'm I'm from BC, Vancouver. And the cost of living here is very high also, but, but even there, it's even worse. Uh, the size of the apartments are tiny. Everything is quite expensive. And 
Honestly, the wages for most people compared to the cost of living are very low. So especially around young people that they, I think there's a general feeling that, that people can't get ahead. Um, a lot of people have to live with their parents in tiny apartments until they get quite old. And the, the competition for jobs and resources is extreme. Because they had such open borders, um, a lot of foreigners or people from mainland China could easily outcompete the locals for jobs because there's always someone in the world who's, who's willing to work for less and do more. Um, so I think a lot of the young people in Hong Kong, there is a certain feeling for some young people that, that maybe they had nothing to lose and that the, the odds and everything was stacked against them. And so this is just my own personal theory, but I think that actually played a lot into the, the um, unrest and unhappiness. Um, it's just a general feeling of things are getting worse and that there's a, a certain lack of opportunity uh, for young people in Hong Kong. So those are probably the, the, the two most negative things that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't miss about Hong Kong. What about you, Jonathan? For me, the smells of Hong Kong were always the hardest thing to stomach, literally, right? There were <laughs> so many smells. And, and uh, you're walking along, uh, yeah, I, have, I have, far, have very vivid memories of walking along a random sewer grate in Hong Kong and this putrid smell wafting out. And I've since learned that this is not only Hong Kong. This is a big city thing, right? So the same thing in New York City. Uh, it's just peculiarly foul and wondering what is what could what mixture could have possibly made that smell and not wanting to to think about that anymore i have another really fond memory of of walking in uh saiwan which is west point in hong kong and there's this street of shops that's all dried fish dried fish and dried other things and things for chinese medicine and uh, we used to joke that uh, yeah, I mean, all kinds of bo random body parts hanging there of animals. Uh, but the, the salted fish was the most pungent smell. And I'd almost hold my breath as I would walk past this street that was full of shops that were all selling dried fish. So uh, I guess sense of smell is my strongest of my senses. And so and so that's particularly poignant. Um, I think that uh, the other thing that Eric touched on is is the is that struggle right? I mean, it's the struggle of of being in a big city, which I think is difficult anyway. You know, where where you have a big city where a lot of people can compete, uh, where the working hours are long, the school hours are long, and uh, and maybe that's just a typical uh, you know typical to what I would call the Asian life, right? You see that in South Korea, you see that in uh, competitive parts of China, you see that in uh, in India certainly, where. Um, where the childhood as I knew it, right, as, as I knew it as a kid growing up in the Midwest of, of the U.S., um, you know, where we certainly worked hard, but I was not expected to, to, to go to uh, what they call Bushiban, which is the uh, Saturday tutor classes, right, to go to those. And, and I would see these kids and I, I would feel bad for them because I thought they're not getting a childhood. Right, or their childhood is is significantly different than mine, and maybe that's just my my elitist Western viewpoint on how childhood should be, and what a you know what a growing up experience should look like. But that was hard to see, and maybe um, you know by having access to China, you know more space. I know China is very densely populated as it is, 
And so uh, I'm not sure that it will improve even if Hong Kongers were forced to integrate entirely and had opportunities to go to mainland China and relocate and have a different experience, right? I mean, the, the economic level between mainland China and Hong Kong, I think, is still significantly different. And so um, I don't expect that that struggle would change. But that was a very hard thing for me to see. Um, and uh, and maybe I'm, I'm just being a proudful Westerner in, in pointing that out. How about you, Fred? What won't you miss about Hong Kong? Well, at a, at a superficial level, I certainly won't miss the, the crowds. I was fortunate in, in, in many ways when I was living there, especially during the most recent stint that I spent there. I used to commute against traffic, um, which was, which was um, uh, incredibly important. Um, because the, the, during the times when I actually had to commute into the city, that was definitely one of the, the least enjoyable aspects of, of life there and something that definitely um, would, would, would ground me down. Um, so I won't miss, um, you know, those times when it was inevitable to, to, to deal with, the, uh, with, with uh, the density, right, the, the very high density population density that that Hong Kong has um, at a more uh, you know at a, at a more spiritual level uh, you know as, as you guys have pointed out definitely there there was that sense of, of dread um, you know one at one moment I'd find myself re- feeling quite quite um euphoric about life in Hong Kong and about having the the privilege of living in such a wonderful place and then uh, very soon, I, I, I might find myself fretting over the fact that that could be could be threatened. Right. Um, I think one perfect encapsulation of that that feeling was during the 2014 protests. Um, I lived very close to one of the the, the hot spots in in Mongkok, and I, I walking through the uh, the protest site um, and and seeing all of the the people standing up for what they wanted for Hong Kong was a very encouraging, very emotive um, experience. But at the same time, when I would talk about the, the issue or explore it a little bit further, I couldn't elude that, that, that feeling that in the end, it, it was probably not going to, to end well for, for the city. Um, th- this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could, we could go on for, for, for many more hours. Um, but this is probably a, a good time to, to start, uh, wrapping up. One thing that, that we like to do, Eric, uh, on, on the podcast is share with, with listeners, some of what we're, we're reading, what we're, what we're listening to. I know that you're an avid consumer of, uh, information and, and podcasts and news. So I'd be very curious to hear, uh, what you're reading or listening to these days. Yeah. Um, I always like talking about this subject, of course, as, as Fred knows really well, I'm a huge consumer of audiobooks. I like having people read to me and a lot of people actually don't, um, like my fiance, for example, she's not into it, but for whatever reason, I love, um, people reading to me. And, and often in these audiobooks, the actual author will read to, which I think is great. Um, so yeah, my, my recent ones, it's actually quite, it's good timing because they were all, uh, kind of China based. And I'm sure you know this book, uh, Destined for War, 
Can America and China Escape the Thucydides Trap by Graham Allison? I just got through that one. It was fascinating and it just seems so much more relevant. I think it was written just a couple years ago and some of the, the nightmare situations actually seem to be coming to fruition. And his analysis of it seems, seems pretty correct. I, 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 I'm not sure what you both think of it. I'd like to actually hear what your thoughts on the book is. Maybe you're not um, quite as, maybe you don't like it quite as much or you have some more uh, critical points. And then the other one I unfortunately listened to, but it was still fascinating. It was a biography of, of Mao, uh, The Unknown Story by Zheng Chang, John Holiday. And uh, that was actually quite a disturbing book. It's really, really long. And uh, I'm sure it's from a, a Western perspective and it. I'm sure it's banned in, in China and, and probably even mentioning this book will will get me in trouble. It's extremely negative about him and uh, really paints him out to be one of the most evil people ever to live. But uh, again, it's a, it was a fascinating uh, listen in my case. And then the, just the third one that I, I thought was fascinating, this isn't really as much of a China book, but still geopolitics. It was How to Hide an Empire, A History of Greater United States by uh, Daniel Immerware. And that was really interesting because it was all about American co colonialism and and so on. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico, where Fred's from, and and uh, their experience in the Philippines, and and kind of the the thoughts and feelings and uh, and problems um, with Americans um, or the contradictions with Americans having an empire um, being being their origin. So so those three, I I really thought were great, and uh, not for everybody, of course. What about you, Jonathan? Uh, so I've been reading, listening to uh, Body of Secrets, Anatomy of the Ultra Secret National Security Agency by James Bamford. And he is a journalist and, and uh, it's a very investigative journalist bent in the book uh, where he takes the NSA from its inception up through, um, I think, 2011 or 2000, the attacks in September 11th, 2001. So um, it's a long swath of the history of the NSA, and you get to see the inside view from the NSA's perspective on uh, significant events, uh, you know, unfolding of, of communist regime in Cuba um, and how the U.S. was eavesdropping on, uh, you know, allies and enemies all around the world. And so it's not a, it's not written like historical fiction. It doesn't move particularly quickly, um, but the you can tell that the facts are are real because there, there's so much gritty detail from, um, you know, from these operators who were in these these ghost ships that were cruising around the world, going at four or five or six knots an hour uh, as they're scraping all of the electronic signals from uh, from the coastlines. So um, interesting if you're interested in the NSA or in, in spy genre, um, and very much uh, more of a uh, journalistic bent than uh, an entertainment bet. So my next book, I'll have to go back to something more entertaining. Um, uh, but that's where I am right now. So Fred, what about you? Well, I have a couple of Hong Kong related recommendations. There's a, obviously a lot that's being written about the subject. There's a lot of great stuff out there, but just to, just to highlight one article that I, I thought was, was really, really good. Um, it's called the infinite heartbreak of loving Hong Kong by Wilfred Chan. It was published um, on the nation, the nation on the 23rd of May, 
and you know right away the the uh, the, the the title of the of the um, of the article really really resonated, um, and I think it it actually reflects some of what we've discussed here today, right? I mean, Hong Kong is a place that we all we all we all love in in, in one way or another, or at least uh, at least uh, have fond feelings towards towards the place. And and it's been it's been hard, right? Um, it's even harder now to to um, uh, deal with everything that's going on, right? And see all these negative things or potentially negative things happen to to a place like that. The other um, recommendation of sorts that I would uh, make um, is for people to go and actually read the decision that um, that the National People's Congress approved. That there's good translations out there. And national security law, Hong Kong is is already a, a a scary headline, but I think it it is worth actually going into the language. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't really do that here today, um, but I encourage everyone to to take a look. It's not very long, but you know, it's one thing to, to talk generally about about these things. It's quite another to see the the actual language. So that would be my my last recommendation and on that note um i'd like to thank eric for joining us uh really really insightful and always a pleasure of course to to talk to an old friend thank you jonathan as well we'll be back next week with another podcast we hope you enjoyed this week's episode we look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business and tune in next week for another episode we'll see you then